Will you join me in prayer before we, we jump into the message again today? Father God, we just want to thank you again for the ability to be in this space, to meet together. Um, God, we just want to pray that, uh, that as we, we approach your word in a minute, that, um, that as we look at some, some difficult things, um, that, that we know that you're here with us, that you're speaking to us through words that were written long ago, but, are, but as scripture said, that are alive because your spirit is here amongst us, that we just, like we just sang. God, I pray that, that each of us can hear you speaking to us individually, uh, wherever we may be. Uh, whether it's a good place or a bad place. If it's a good place, may we be encouraged. If it's bad, may we be convicted and, and hear your, your voice calling us back uh, to, towards yourself. Uh, pray all these things in your name. Amen. So for the, over the last little bit, we've been working through the book uh, of Matthew, and we're actually going to be in the book of Matthew for the whole next year. Um, and I was excited about this series when we pitched it a, a, a few months back, um, and as I've been working through Matthew, I'm getting more and more excited, um, just because you realize how beautiful and layered and complex the book is, um, and, and what it means to, 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 to hear those messages in our current space, where we are right now. If you haven't been following us so far, the book of Matthew begins by, by, by showing everybody that Jesus is uh, the continuation of the Old Testament, that, he, that the, everything in, in, in God's work with the Israelites through the Old Testament has been driving towards this person of Jesus, that he didn't come out of nowhere, um, but that he is the fulfillment of, of everything that was, was happening in, in, in the Old Testament there. So I'm going to grab some water, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. Um, we, we went from there to show how, how Jesus then kind of resets the entire mission of what Israel was all about. He doesn't reset it, but he shows what it was supposed to look like. He begins his preaching career uh, with a really important phrase that we looked at a couple weeks ago. So a phrase that kind of helps us understand the entirety of what we've been looking at recently, which is so, something called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins his preaching career with a statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around or at hand or is near, depending on your translation. Um, and that declaration is, is huge and beautiful and, and, and carries so much uh, with it. Um, if you weren't here for that message, uh, I'd encourage you to go listen back to it, but also just to kind of catch you up to speed because the word repent in particular in, in our society can, can carry a lot of baggage with it, can it? Um, we talked about how it can remind us of the guy standing on the soapbox yelling, repent for the end is near, right? Like that's what we usually think when we hear the word repent, but it's, it's not what that's about at all. Um, Jesus' declaration, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, is a beautiful invitation to everybody to come closer to him. Essentially what it's saying, the word repent just means to turn. You're headed in one direction, and so to repent is then to turn and go in a different direction. When we're talking about that relationship to something we call sin, which is an archery term, meaning there's a, uh, in, there's a mark you're supposed to hit, a target, and if you miss it, then you hamartia, which is the Greek word for sin. And so what Jesus is declaring, is saying, hey, if you're missing the mark, my invitation for you is to turn back towards it and to head back in the right direction. It's a beautiful invitation. He says, come back towards me because the kingdom of heaven, this, this, this godly way of life is all around you and you just need to open your eyes to see it. We talked about how the kingdom of heaven is, is the, the way of God, is, that, is a kingdom that functions on a different set of principles than the rest of the world. And that, that that kingdom is what we're being invited into. So that Jesus is calling us to turn away from the kingdoms of the world and turn towards the one of God. Last week, we talked about how Jesus gives each of, each of us a purpose with inside, inside of that kingdom life. 
Um, he, call, he calls us salt and light. Uh, it left us with a big question, though. Right? What, do, what specifically does that kingdom life look like? We're supposed to be people who bring it to the rest of the world, to attract people to us, to enhance flavor, to help people persevere, to encourage, to do all of those things. But what does that look like? What does it actually look like to live inside the kingdom life? And actually, in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to actually see that play itself out. Because we can safely assume that's a question that the, the original hearers would have been asking as well. And so Jesus dives into it. If you're following along in your Bible, we're in Matthew 5, and we're going to begin at verse 17 today. Uh, it's a longer section, um, we're gonna, and I'll read it, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about how we're going to go through it today. Matthew 5, verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will, have no, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." You have heard it. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. Anyone says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, Go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said that the people long ago do not break your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And finally, you have heard it said, Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If, someone, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them also the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn them away, the one who wants to borrow from you. So, Obviously, we have more than we can tackle in one message in all of these parts here. There's a lot going on. 
And I get that. I actually would love to take each of the subcategories we read uh, as an individual message themselves. But if we were to do that for every time we run into this place in Matthew, a one-year study of Matthew turns into two really, really quickly. So sometimes what we're going we're gonna to have to do, and this is one of those cases, is we're going to have to look at what Matthew's trying to prove by the, or Matthew's trying to argue with the taking a wider view of this particular section. Actually, next week, though, um, just to give a forewarning, we will be diving specifically into the topic of divorce, which I know is a really, really tricky one. Uh, it's one that we don't talk about often uh, in churches just because of, or we do churches, but in a message like this, uh, because it's so hard. Um, but it's a, something that in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about twice, so we don't really want to just skip it. Um, so I want to encourage you to come next week for that discussion. Um, we'll kind of hone in with the practices we're going to learn today on that specific topic uh, and take a look at it that way. Um, what we're going to do instead in this section is we're going to, like I said, take a 10,000-foot uh, look at what Matthew is doing here. Um, if you wanted to dive into any of the other specifics, then the, my, my ever-freestanding uh, invitation to grab coffee is out there. I'd love to talk to you about any of them. So if you're sitting there going, actually, I'm here today to talk about oaths, and we can't really skip that, um, well, that's fine. Let's do it, but we'll just do it at coffee instead. Sound good? All right, so first, in order to understand what Matthew's doing in this section, we have to begin with the first paragraph. It says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, I, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear to the law until everything is accomplished. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, growing up at least, this was a tricky little bit. Because at first glance, it seems to suggest uh, that the message of Jesus is just the Old Testament message, the Old Testament law on steroids. There was actually a, a heresy early on in the Christian church called Gnosticism um, that believed just that. It said that in order, in order for you to serve Jesus, you have to, or, I'm sorry, not Gnosticism, it was the Judaizers. Totally different heresy. There were two of them. Um, Gnosticism is different. Judea, the Judaizers were a different category, and they were the ones we're talking about right now. Um, they actually believed that in order to follow Jesus, you had to keep every letter of the Old Testament law to its literal detail, the way they understood it, and everything Jesus taught. And Passages like this would seem to suggest maybe, that's, maybe they were on to something. At the same time, the book of John, or I'm sorry, the book, wow, I'm all over the place on what I'm trying to say here. Not the book of John, the book of Galatians by Paul uh, actually is, uh, is directly against this idea of the Judaizers that that's what it is. So how do we wrestle with these two ideas? If you're going to, if you, if you need to keep the Old Testament and, and everything that Jesus is teaching, and if you don't, like maybe this passage suggests, well, then it's hell for you. That's a really anxiety-producing space, isn't it? I think many of us were growing up wondering if we've kept enough of the rules in order to be good enough to somehow get to heaven. And passages like this can create that kind of anxiety. For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And those are difficult words to wrestle with. What if I mess up? What if I fall short of keeping the whole law? Am I damned? Am I, what is, is that what it's saying? And so the quick answer is no, that's not what it's saying. But let's look at why. Now one of the themes that we've seen each week as we've gone through Matthew is the, that the, the idea that Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. We said that already at the beginning. Matthew's gone through a lot of effort to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was doing. That everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to Jesus, and that's what we see again here in this passage. 
Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And essentially what he's saying when he says that is he's saying, I've, uh, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament. See, the Hebrew Old Testament was organized a little bit different than the way that we have it now. We have it organized close, as close as we can get to chronological order. That's kind of the way we like to think. We think in that way. Um, they didn't organize it that way. The Hebrews organized their Bible into the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then in two other sections. One was called the Writings, which would be things like 1st, 2nd Kings, would be like Chronicles, be like those kinds of things. And then a whole other section was called the Prophets, um, and, they, and they would all be kind of lumped together in that way. And so when Jesus is saying, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets, essentially what he's saying is, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament. So how does that work then? Because I don't know about you, but I don't follow all of the Old Testament laws to the letter like the Pharisees did, right? I had bacon this week. How many of you might have had bacon too, right? If you had bacon, then you violated the Old Testament law. Sorry about that. So um, it's okay though. We'll get there. I also am wearing a mixed cloth shirt, right? So this shirt, it's got some stretches in it, so that also would not work for the Old Testament stuff. So in order to understand this particular section, we actually have to look at an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel during the Babylonian exile. So the, the both kingdoms have now been in exile. They're in different places, and Jeremiah is a prophet. He's looking over the land of Israel, which has been burned and ransacked, and people are in exile. Um, and, and he writes to the people from that space. See, God had made a contract with Israel, or a covenant, maybe you've heard it called that, he said, I will be with you in a special way. You will be my people. And he actually said, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that you'll be a kingdom of priests. You're going to represent me to the rest of the world, God says to Israel. And then he spells out exactly what that's going to look like, which is the law, the Torah. Now, a couple really important things to remember about this covenant that God made with Israel. First, it was a voluntary covenant. If you read through the Old Testament, I actually was surprised when I did it uh, when I focused directly on this a little while back, how many times God asks Israel if they still want to be in, right? He asks them, hey, here's the covenant that I laid out for you. Do you still want it? I'll be with you in a special way. I expect certain things from you so that because you are my representatives to the world. And so if you don't keep that up, there are consequences. And so what he'll do over and over again is say, do you want the deal? Do you want me to be with you in a special way, which comes with a special blessing but also special responsibility? And over and over and over again, Israel says, we want in. One of my favorite examples of it is right at the end of the book of Joshua, where Joshua lays out all of the covenant promises again, looks to Israel. He says to them, do you want in? That's the big line that Joshua says, as for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. That comes from that section. Israel actually says, yeah, we want in. And Joshua stops him. He goes, hold on a minute. I don't think you do. I don't think you can do it. Don't take this lightly. They double down, say, we want in. Uh, and within a few chapters of the book of Judges, we see they failed out in that already. So the first thing I want to, to see when we look at the Old Testament covenant is that it's voluntary. Second, is that throughout the Old Testament, Israel feel, fails to keep their side of things. They actually fail more than they succeed to do the things that they repeatedly promise. The fail, that failure then leads to the consequences that God had laid out at the beginning, which is where Jeremiah comes into the story. And yet Jeremiah writes this, Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband, husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the, greatest of, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, for most people, if you entered into a serious contract or covenant with someone and they regularly and repeatedly failed to keep their, their promises, what would you do? You'd, you'd probably scrap the contract and start over, wouldn't you? I, I would. That's, what, that's the way the world works. If, they, if you don't keep your side of it, we're not going to keep renewing it. But that's not what God does. No, instead he says, I'm going to keep the covenant, but I'm going to change the terms. I'm going to change how it's carried out. You see, in the Old Testament, the laws were rules to be followed, things, external things that they had to do. But God realizes throughout the Old Testament that, and Jesus affirms here that the rules aren't the problem. They, they don't ever get kept, but they're not the problem. We're the problem. Our ability to carry out these external tasks, we can't do it. We fail over and over and over and over again. And so rather than scrap the entire contract, what God does, he says, I'm going to give you a new set of rules. Or said, I'm not going to give you a new set of rules. Instead, I'm going to do something to embed and internalize what those rule, the heart of what these rules meant so that you can follow me in that way. In other words, it isn't rules for rules' sake. It's going to be about transforming our will to be in line with God's will which will then usher in exactly what Jesus declares, the kingdom of God on earth. So Jesus is doing in this particular space here. Maybe an analogy will help. This is kind of a complex idea. How many of you have ever learned a completely new skill? Like you didn't know how to do it, and then you started to try to do it. Maybe it was learn how to play a new instrument. Anybody ever done that? Right? Or maybe it's a, a second language or a brand new sport. Uh, something, so it, whatever it might be for you, it pick, think of something in your mind that you had to try to learn for the first time. Now, pick something that was hard to learn, because some of us are savants out there, and you can just pick up something and get it immediately. That's not going to really work for this analogy, so you've got to think of something that's hard, that was hard for you to learn. Uh, so if you think about that, when you're starting to learn those things, let's say it's a new instrument or a new language, what do you need to do first? Where do you start? The basics. There we go. That's ex good. That's exactly it. You start with the basics, right? You need to learn the basic notes. You need to learn the scales, right? You have to be able to go up and down the scales in that particular space. Or, right? And then what do you do with that? You then practice those over and over and over and over and over again. Whenever you're at the beginning part of learning music, and I actually it's why a lot of us don't make it past that part, um, it's tedious, it's hard, it's kind of boring, right? Because you're just doing these basic things over and over and over again. Because the skill itself isn't in our nature. The same is true with a second language, right? If you ever tried to learn a language, what do you need to do? You make a huge stack of flashcards, right, Holly? No, not that part? Okay, that's a bad way to do it, so don't do it that way, apparently. But you, you, you try to learn the vocabulary. You go over the basics, right? You, go, you try to learn some of the vocabulary, some of the rules, some of the, the different grammatical functions. Am I on track now? All right, good. 
That's what you do. Do that, not the other. That's why I can't ever do it well. But either way, you go through these basics and you go over them and over them and over, over them again. When you're, whenever, the same thing is true whether you're trying to learn basketball or golf or whatever it might be. You start with the basics and then repeat them and repeat them and repeat them. You keep repeating those basic stills until they become like second nature, right? See, those of you who are good at basketball, I'm not, so this doesn't apply to me. But when, you, but <clears throat> when you're playing basketball, do you think about every dribble you make? You can't, right? If you actually had to stop and think about every time you bounce the ball, somebody will steal it from you and you won't be any good at basketball. No, you, you practice dribbling enough so that you can just do it while you're thinking about other things where you can keep your head up, you can make the pass, you can make the shot, whatever it might be. For any of us who play golf, we all know what happens when we start to overthink, about our, overthink our shots, right? Um, you all join me in the woods looking for your ball because that's where I usually am and you can join me when you start to think too hard about it, right? Those who speak second languages or play instruments, you don't have to think about every word or every note you play before you play it. It just becomes part of what you do. See, once we internalize a skill, once it's in in inside of us, it becomes part of our nature. We don't think about every individual thing anymore. Actually, then we, what actually starts to happen is we can start to use those basic skills to create things more beautiful than those individual skills themselves, right? We take basic words to create sentences and paragraphs and stories. We're able to dribble with our heads up to make great passes or, nice, or, or good shots. We're able to take the beautiful individual music notes and turn them into a song or a symphony. Now, none of those things violate the basic principles of the scales or dribbling or the words on the flashcards, do they? No, they take the basic principles that were present at the beginning and then use them, <clears throat> uh, they use them for what they were intended for in the first place, which is far more beautiful than the scales or the words themselves. Does that make sense? I hope so. All right, good. That's what we've got going on in this passage. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to erase the basics, but to show you what it looks like to internalize them, to have them written on your heart, to allow God through the Spirit to write them on your heart, to transform your will to mirror his, which was always the point of the law in the first place. Over and over again in the Old Testament and the New, we see that the, the the rules themselves were never the point. Whether it was the fact that when David commits adultery, the penalty for adultery was murder, or murder, mur wow, jeez. Get me off the stage today. This is awful. The penalty for adultery was death. It was a death penalty. And yet God doesn't put David to death because, it was because he writes Psalm 52. Because he, because he realized that he needed his heart to change. Over and over again in the in the. In the in both Jesus' lifetime and in the prophets, he says, God says, I don't actually care about the sacrifices if your heart's not in them. You can go through the rote rules, but it was never about doing just that. It was about changing your heart to understand what it was all about. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing here. The rules were never about being rules for your rules' sake. They were always meant to transform the people into a kingdom of priests, into kingdom people. And so understanding that then helps us understand the second part of this passage. Therefore, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to remember that Jesus began his entire preaching career with a declaration that the kingdom is all around us. If you want to experience it, though, he says, then you have to start with the basics. There's a way to experience the kingdom of God, and God himself has given it to us. In other words, if you want to experience the kingdom, you need to do things God's way. See, it's so important for us to realize that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not just talking about the future. He's not saying keep the whole law or you're going to not make it into heaven in, in the way we think about it in the future or, or that you're going to go to hell for eternity. He's, it's not, he's not saying that's how things work. What he's saying is if you want to experience eternity now, you need to get your, your will in line with God's will. And to experience it fully He's saying you need to go all in. Partway doesn't work. If you kind of live a godly life, well, then you might experience little tastes here and there of the kingdom life, but you're going to be missing so much. If you don't go all in, you won't experience the kingdom. And Jesus goes on to give you some case studies on how that works. He says, you've heard it said that to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. You see, Jesus starts by addressing some of the most well-known parts of the Torah, the the Ten Commandments. See, in these commandments, uh, there's one that says we shouldn't murder each other, which I think is a good one. I think we should still hold on to that, probably more at its letter, because, you know, it's nice not having to worry about you all wanting to kill me after this, right? So, (laughs) hopefully you don't want to do that. But Jesus takes that basic principle, and he shows us what it was supposed to do to us. As good as it is to not murder each other, that's not where it was supposed to end. See, most of us don't actually struggle with the desire to to murder people. I, I hope that's true. Um... If someone cuts you off in traffic, you might be angry, um, but I very, very much hope you don't contemplate killing them. Um, If you do, I know some wonderful counselors, and you should go talk to them because that's a problem. So let's deal with that. See, but the temptation then is, is is to hear that and think, well, it says don't murder. Well, good. I don't murder. We're done. Not a, not a big deal. I haven't killed anyone ever, so I'm finished. Great. But what Jesus is saying, no, you're not finished. What he's saying, he's saying is I've memorized a flashcard or I've learned to dribble, but there's more to it. You see, in order to murder someone, I need to set aside their humanity for a minute. I need to view them as disposable. And when that mindset sets in, something terrible happens inside of us. Actually, we have history books filled with the atrocities that happen when powerful people lose sight of people as actual people and start to view them as objects. You see, Jesus says the kingdom life is not compatible with that kind of thinking. In other words, we have to see inherent value in each person we meet if we're going to live in the, the kingdom life. We can't see them as disposable or expendable, which starts with not killing them, again, a good thing, but it doesn't end there. Because as Jesus says, hatred does the same thing. 
which is the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about just being frustrated with someone. He's talking about rejecting someone's value in our hearts, which is probably something more of us can relate to. See, Jesus is saying hatred, that kind of anger, is not compatible with the kingdom life. In other words, you won't experience the fullness of the kingdom in that space. Which I think, when we really stop and look at it, we all kind of know that already. What happens when you run across someone you hate? Now, I get it, we're all too holy to actually hate anyone, but let's just pretend we might have some hatred in our heart for some people somewhere. But what happens when we run into someone in that space? Does it feel good? Does it feel like you're flourishing? <laughs> or, if you're like me, does anxiety start running through you? Right? Do you want to duck down that aisle so you don't have to see them or talk to them? Maybe, maybe it even goes as far as you to fantasizing about them in pain of some kind. Not like physical murder pain, but like, hey, it wouldn't be so bad if something bad happened to them. Did I get that? I think that's what Jesus is talking about. That kind of Life is not compatible with the kingdom life either, and it gets its roots from you shall not murder. It says, careful those who say to their brother, you're fool, for in the dangers of the fire of hell. If you've ever had someone in your life that you truly actually hate, you know what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying you're going to go to hell for eternity. Now, without Jesus, there's a different question, and we're going to talk about hell in a different part of Matthew here. But in this particular case, what he's saying is, if you're holding on to that kind of hatred, you're already experiencing hell. Because it starts to eat you alive, doesn't it? I lived for years in that space. And until I actually sat with someone, a counselor, to work through it, first of all, I wouldn't have even admitted it was there until I had a counselor, but then he helped me see that it was. And I started to realize how many parts of my life that that had penetrated into, parts that I didn't even know. Careful to you, those, those who say to your brother, you fool, because you're in the dangers of the fire of hell. When I, when I moved into that hatred space, the fires of hell affected so many different parts of my life. I won't be there for eternity, but I was there in the temporary current space. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Same is true with adultery. Sleeping with people who aren't your spouse is not compatible with the kingdom life, which anyone who has actually been part of an affair already knows. Right? An affair doesn't produce life in the cheater or the one being cheated on. It does damage that cascades out, doesn't it? But it goes beyond just sleeping with someone, doesn't it? Not physically cheating is just the foundation. Because when we cheat, we're not valuing the person we've committed to in the way that he or she deserves. And honestly, we're not valuing the person we're cheating with in the way they deserve either. That's not compatible with the kingdom life. So it starts in the space of don't physically cheat, but then moves into all of these other spaces. True, because the same thing is true with lust. 
whether it's just flirting with a person at work. You may never have crossed the physical line, but you've given them some of your emotional energy that should have been reserved for your spouse. We know that doesn't produce life in us as well. Maybe it's exciting for a temporary amount of time, but you all know it doesn't produce life inside. Or maybe it's pornography. That one's so prevalent because of the ease at which the, the ease it creates to be able to. It makes it so easy to devalue a person. The distance the screen creates allows us to see people as just body parts. And so it makes it incredibly easy to create a cognitive dis dissonance between the actual person who has actual feelings and is actually living in this world. Or maybe it's just fantasizing about someone who, who's not your spouse. Whatever it might be, you already know that it's not compatible with the kingdom life. See, I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not experience the kingdom of heaven. It's easy to think that if we fall short, we're just not going to be able to go to heaven in the future. It's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that if, you, if, you're, not gonna, if you're not working the basics of the kingdom life out, you're going to experience little tastes of hell now. That you're not going to live in the flourishing way that God wants, because if you're going to do that, if you're going to live the kind of life that God wants for you, which, by the way, is the best kind of life, it requires us to keep the basic principles and actually play them out to the fullest, what Jesus is saying. Now, uh, clearly this message has come to a heavy place, and honestly, I think that's okay sometimes. We don't always love to live there, but we need to sometimes because Jesus does it. Because maybe there are some of us who need to sit for a minute in that heaviness. Because we have things in our life that we know aren't compatible with the kingdom life. Whether it's anger or hatred, whether it's lust or the inability to keep our word or broken relationships or the desire for revenge or whatever it might be. In all of those things, we're not valuing people in the way they were created to be valued. When honestly, every single one of the law brings us back there. Love God or love your neighbor. So maybe we need to sit in that heavy space for just a minute this morning. Maybe we've avoided dealing with those things for a long time. I know I've had that in my life before. Things I knew weren't right. Things I knew that, I sh that weren't compatible with the kingdom life. Things I knew that were holding me back. And yet we have this amazing ability to internally justify them, don't we? Maybe we eternally justify them or ignore them because we don't actually want to see how destructive they are or how destructive they've become in our lives. So we just push them down and away. I've always said that's the reason that Jesus asks us to confess. Inside of our own selves, we can eternally justify almost anything. We, can, we, don't, we don't actually look at it so it doesn't feel nearly as bad as it really is. What confession does is it's not, confession isn't something that God needs because he knows it already. Confession is something that you need because what it does is it takes this thing that we've had in the dark that we've internally justified or said it wasn't as bad as we thought it was and it makes us bring it out into the light. And we have to look at it and we have to go, that is disgusting, which is why we don't want to do it, right? Maybe that's the space you're in this morning. Maybe this morning you take a hard look inward and admit to yourself that there are things in your life that are not compatible with kingdom living. Things that are holding you back. Things that are keeping you from flourishing. Because the fact of the matter is, 
we can't begin to walk out of those spaces until we actually see them for what they are. Not the way we sold ourselves inside our minds, but the way that they actually are. Now, that being said, maybe there are others of you who've known for a long time that thing, the things you're doing aren't compatible with the kingdom life. You know it already, you hate them, but you feel like it's already too late. You've messed up too many times and there's no coming back, so why try? That's a really tough place to be. Maybe you're in that spot this morning. It feels hopeless. It makes you feel worthless. But see, this is where I think the beauty of Matthew lies. Because to both groups of people, the people that need to sit with their stuff because they know there's something holding them back but they haven't wanted to look at it, or the people that have already known and looked at it but don't know what to do with it, Jesus is the, the, um, what Jesus says to both groups is exactly the same. It's why he begins his preaching the way he does. He says, repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. When you're in either of those two spaces, you can see the hope that comes from that statement. When you're in a spot where you know the thing is holding you back and you look at it and it feels disgusting and gross, what Jesus says to you is, yes, you're not headed in the right way, so turn and come back to experience the kingdom of heaven. For those who've tried and failed over and over and over again, he says, get up, turn again, and try again, because the kingdom of heaven is all around you. If you're feeling convicted this morning by an area in your life that isn't compatible with the kingdom, maybe today is the day you take the first step towards doing something about it. Maybe today is the day that you admit that it's actually a problem, that it's hurting you, that it's hurting people around you. And hopefully today is the day you also realize that you don't need to walk that journey alone. And you can reach out for help. Whether it be from someone in this community, a friend or trusted person that you have in your life, or whether it be from a professional counselor or something like that. There are things in our lives that aren't compatible with kingdom living, and those things hurt us. And so Jesus calls out to us and says, repent, turn from what is hurting you, and allow your hearts to be transformed towards the will of God. And from there, experience the life that comes out of that, the kingdom life. If you're feeling like it's too late, that you've tried before and failed, that you've failed too many times to still be accepted, realize that's the Old Testament story. Israel failed repeatedly, and God doesn't give up on them. It was to them, in their failure, that Jesus makes his declaration that today is the day we get to turn and try again. So maybe today is the day we, need to, we decide to take another first step. Jesus says in the Gospels, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. You all have access to that life, but only if you're willing to allow our, our if only, if we're allow, only if we're willing to allow our hearts to be transformed towards the will of God. Only if we're willing to put off the things in our lives that aren't compatible with kingdom living. Throughout the book of Matthew, the declaration is over and over again that you're valuable, that you matter, that God loves you even if you've constantly fallen short. And it's, it's precisely because he loves you that he's calling you to something different, something better, something fuller, that he wants you to get rid of the things in your lives that are holding you back so that you can experience something heavenly. It's a tough step to take. It's not comfortable even just admitting that we're not where we should be is really, really hard. 
But we began this entire series by asking the question, do we trust that God is who he says he is? And we come back to it again today. Jesus said the heavenly life is the one that leads to flourishing. Now, the first step might be difficult, but do you trust that Jesus is who he says he is in that? Because the fact of the matter is, when we turn, we can experience something so much better than what we left behind. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to realize that all of us have fallen short in one way or another. We all have things in our lives that aren't compatible with the way that you want us to live. God, help us to see that the way you want us to live isn't a set of arbitrary rules, isn't a set of things so that, that to, to get control over us or, or, or what, anything like that, but it is a way of living that actually leads to our flourishing. God, give us the courage to take a look at those areas in our lives in which we've known for a while aren't the way they should be, but been afraid to look at. Give us courage to look at those and to deal with them. God, for those of us who feel like we've tried so many times and failed, give us the courage to try again, to take another step towards moving away from the things we know are hurting us towards the life that leads to flourishing. Amen.